0: Welcome to a special series of EMS World podcasts. I am Hilary Gates, Senior Editorial and Program Director for EMS World. The COVID-19 pandemic has challenged and impacted the EMS profession in unique and lasting ways. So what are the best practices for us as clinicians, leaders, managers, medical directors, and for EMS as a profession? EMS World is proud to bring you the latest information from our COVID-19 webinars, now available in audio-only podcast episodes. This episode, The Coronavirus and Your Social Health, How to Manage Stress and Your Relationships, features Rhonda Kelly and Jonathan Dickerson and is sponsored by McKesson.
1: Hello and welcome to the latest in EMS World's series of special webinars on topics related to the COVID-19 pandemic. Today's presentation is the Coronavirus and Your Social Health, How to Manage Stress and Your Relationships. My name is Jonathan Bassett, Editorial Director at EMS World. We're very happy to have everybody joining us today. We would like to thank McKesson for sponsoring today's presentation. During the webinar, feel free to submit questions and comments for our speakers by using the question submission section on your screen. At the end of the presentation, we'll try to answer as many of your questions as we can in the time allowed. And today we are very excited to welcome our two speakers. First up, we have Rhonda Kelly. Rhonda is National Director of Health, Wellness, and Resiliency for Global Global Medical Response. She is also founder of Responder Strong. That's a collaboration working to improve mental health support for responders and their families. Rhonda has served as as a medical provider on Antarctic icebreakers, as a volunteer and career EMT, as a firefighter paramedic for 17 years, a paramedic educator, and an ER and psych ER nurse prior to her current role. Joining Rhonda is Jonathan Dickerson. Jonathan is community engagement manager at the Center for Relationship Education. He has over 20 years of experience spanning small business consulting, corporate executive sales, and nonprofit training. Jonathan has served on the Board of Directors at the Center for Relationship Education for six years before transitioning to his current full-time staff position. And with those impressive introductions, I am going to turn it over to our presenters. Rhonda, Jonathan, thank you very much for joining us today, and please take it away.
0: We're very excited to be here. So, rolling right into it. EMS, we all know it is a challenging profession. There are long hours, rotating shifts, odd hours, sleep deprivation, high call volume, administrative stressors. We have the frequent flyers, people who don't know who else to call. So 911 is the easy button. We do our best, but sometimes what we can offer isn't really what our patients need. The secondary trauma exposure, the financial implications, EMS doesn't tend to be a very high-paying career, yet there is a tremendous amount of passion being invested into it by EMTs, medics, flight nurses, and and everyone else under the umbrella. One of the other big stressors is also poor nutrition. It's hard, especially when posting. There's not easy access to a microwave, to a refrigerator. The The cabs of the ambulances are cramped. We definitely don't really want our food in the back of the ambulance. So there's all these challenges. But today, many of these challenges actually pale in comparison to the challenges we see in this environment with the COVID outbreak. We have all the above challenges still, but now we have things like mandatory overtime or brownouts, either to reserve resources and brownout situations for the impending wave or mandatory overtime in an attempt to keep pace with the demands on the 911 system. We have extended decon procedures. Now it's no longer just clearing the hospital, writing the report on the fly, and jumping back into the bus. There's actually some, if there's a COVID concern, decon takes additional time. We need to be in full PPE for it, which brings up another big stressor, the looming or in some areas already existing PPE shortage. We want to protect ourselves, and it can engender a great deal of fear when we're afraid we don't have the necessary equipment to do so fear of exposure. We're all afraid of getting sick. We're afraid of what will happen with potential isolation or quarantine time. And not only what that means for us, but what it means for our families, whether we have a significant other and young ones at home, or we live with older members of our family, whether they be parents or grandparents, the fear of becoming a vector for the disease, bringing home COVID from our field operations into our home place. Financial impacts. It's different now than just the paycheck. Some agencies pay people when they're in isolation and quarantine, some are not able to. What happens if we come home and our significant other is an educator or a healthcare worker, which is a pretty common scenario for EMS workers. If we are isolating quarantined, do they also lose employment? Do they lose pay during that time? This brings a whole new facet to the financial concern realm. And then the other big thing, and I think the thing that really hits all of us the hardest is, we don't have a template for this. We haven't ever in any of our careers as a nation, as a world, experienced a pandemic like this. So we don't really know, we don't have our expectations managed and set for us. We don't know what the duration is going to be. We can't pace ourselves off that. And this kind of a mindset often lends us towards feeling powerless, to feeling like we're lacking control. And that's not typically a ground that we're really comfortable with. So Jonathan and I are here today not to talk about the doom and gloom, but to talk about ways that we can better manage our stress in this time of increased challenge to really be the people that we want to be.
2: Making the most of the time that we have and moving forward um, with strategy is how every call that you go out on happens Uh, but right now when every call is such a different field than it was previously it's really important that we make sure from a relational standpoint we're still making the most of the time that we have and we're still moving forward with a strategy Uh, but that strategy isn't always presented, so we kind of wanted to walk you through uh, ways that you could implement strategy uh, for your optimal health, but also for the optimal health of, uh, of all the people that are in your circle, in your tribe.
0: And we wanted to make this simple and memorable. So we have described the three phases of controlling our stress and managing our relational responses to it in an arc. Self-assess, the A. Self-regulate, the R. Self-correct, the C. So when we talk about this and self-assess, we're looking at taking that pause, that moment. Why am I feeling, acting, and speaking the way that I am? Self-regulate, we're focusing on what can I do to bring myself back to center, back to the person that I know I am and that I wanna be? And self-correct, how can I make this situation better? So we'll go into these in greater detail. When we're stressed, anger tends to be our default. It is the easy button, it is the easy way to go. But if we can take a second to pause and identify what's really going on, we can save ourselves and save the relationships that are important to us a lot of stress. I'm sure many of you are familiar with the acronym HALT, hungry, angry, lonely, tired, scared, or sad. Oftentimes when we're lashing out, especially if we're already stressed or we're fatigued, um, we have limited bandwidth to manage the complexities of social interaction, we just lash out in anger or irritation. But if we can identify that, hey, what's bothering me isn't the person I'm talking to. It's not the, um, the loud noise from the kids. It's not a comment that my significant other made. It's not the driver who just cut me off on the highway. All of those statements, if we believe that that's the source of our stress is very disempowering for us and it perpetuates this cycle. But if we can stop, pause and recognize what's going on with me, like I am exhausted and I'm pretty hungry. And I'm really uncertain, I don't know what's going on. If we can come to that realization, it draws our our power center back to ourselves. We can address those things. I'm tired. I need a nap. I'm hungry. Let me get a snack. hopefully something good and And we'll talk about a little bit of the the vulnerability point later. If we're just really uncertain and feeling scared or, or anxious, sharing that with people that we care about rather than putting up a front or facade can really go a long way towards putting us in the right mindset to maintain that healthy relationship. I really love the adage, the adage that we're never upset for the reason we think we are. It's we're trained from a very early age to look for external reasons why we're feeling the way that we're feeling, but really our feelings are driven by our thoughts, the stories we tell ourselves. And this is a really, really empowering point. If it's our thoughts that are driving our emotions and driving our reactions, We can change those. We're the only one who has the power to do anything inside our own heads. And in that moment of pause, just asking, what's the story I'm telling myself?
2: One of the pieces that um, can help bring this to to mind pretty quickly is If you remember back to the last time that you were having just a particularly amazing day, it seemed like everything was really going very well for you. Uh, maybe that was the day that uh, you you asked the question and somebody said, yes, I will marry you. Or maybe that was the day that um, you got a promotion or a raise or just found some great news about uh, about a family member or a friend. You're really excited for them. And then you get into the car and somebody cuts you off and they're driving like a turtle total jerk. But you know what? let them drive that way. I'm having such a great day. It doesn't even bother me. Just the acknowledgement that the frame of mind that you're in completely transforms your, um, your lens that you're looking at this really annoying situation to be one that you say, it's not that big a deal. I can manage that. It's not a problem. I'm not going to let that ruin my day. But just as Rhonda pointed out with all the pieces of halts, if you're not at your best, if you're having a big deficit between where your best is and where you are operating right now, then any of those annoyances, and they become pounding on top of each other, any of them uh, become markedly harder for you to simply brush off. But you have to take the time to think on those thoughts and reframe them towards the healthier so that you can be the healthier.
0: Great, all good point. Moving on to the next section regulate. What can I do for myself? So now that we've identified, why am I feeling this way? What in my mindset, what in the story I'm telling myself, or what in my physical experience is causing me to feel this discomfort or to, to react the way that I am? What can I do for myself? And I know we have all heard this. It really does fall into the description that it is simple, but not easy. All of these things we know are good for us, but it's oftentimes When we're in times of stress and have narrow bandwidth, we don't think to do these things. The foundations: sleep. Emergency response work is a sleep disruptor. We are pretty much all running on some level of sleep deprivation at all the time. A nap, well-timed here or there, less than 20 or 30 minutes or more than an hour and a half to be maximizing on our uh, restoration is tremendous. And sometimes that's all we need. It's, It's not very much different than a toddler. When we see a toddler acting out, we all know child needs a nap. Sometimes we're the same way. Nutrition. Nutrition is the bane of the EMS world, as we talked about before. Oftentimes we rely on EMS lounges, which are stocked with energy drinks and ice cream and snack bars that are quick, easy to grab, easy to go, often high carb, low quality nutrition. And it ultimately might sustain us in the moment, but we'll experience a crash later on that exacerbates everything. Movement, the importance of movement cannot be overstated. There's a tremendous amount of research out there about sedentary science, what it does to our biomarkers, what it does to our metabolism, even when we're just sitting still for as short as 20 to 30 minutes. The great point about this is that we don't need to go and have an hour workout to exa- uh, to counteract these impacts. We can just get out, choose to stand when we're posting, um, choose to stop at a park if we're posting and have that opportunity do some squats, swing on a swing, um, go for a walk, do anything that just gets us moving, arm circles, swings, movements in the direction that we don't normally get when we're stuck in the cab of the ambulance. Outdoor time, and I love this because adding the outdoors to anything is a stacking method which enhances the benefits of whatever we're combining with it. There's a tremendous amount of research that shows time spent in nature, whether that is a park, by a river, by a pond, in the mountains, in the beach, whatever you have accessible to you, someplace where there's greenery, where there's nature, has incredible restorative effects, helps us downregulate our sympathetic nervous system, helps us breathe a little more deeply, helps us just relax into the moment, whatever time we have. So even if you find yourself in a busy shift, but you can take a moment to step outside, just relax, reground yourself, it can do a tremendous amount to decrease the accumulation of stress over the course of your shift. Breath work, and we all understand the sympathetic and the the parasympathetic nervous system. The reason breath work works for us is because it triggers the vagus nerve. It helps pull us out of sympathetic overdrive and back into parasympathetic where we can rest, we can digest, we can regenerate ourselves rather than being continually amped up. Something as simple as a conscious slow inhale to a count of four followed by a conscious slow exhale to the count of six. And this is the key. The prolonged exhale is really what fires up the vagus nerve. can help us, even if it's just five breaths, ten breaths. Scattering those little breaks throughout the day helps us come back to our center and to calm ourselves down. One of the big things we also see across the branches in emergency response is sometimes when we get overwhelmed, we seek to numb. Whether that's alcohol, controlled substances, Netflix, shopping, um, excessive pretty much anything. Defining excessive as something that's having a negative impact on the rest of our lives. This is kind of a go-to when we feel something we're uncomfortable with, especially in a time of of overwhelm that we're in right now. Taking that conscious moment to recognize, yeah, I am overwhelmed. And instead of reaching for whatever our favorite numbing tool of the day is, just sit with it for a moment. When we run from things, the monster seems bigger. It seems like we're less in control when we can just sit and acknowledge this is how I'm feeling. This is what's going on. It gives us a tremendous amount of self-control back. gives us our power to manage things and to maybe recognize that we're amplifying their import in our mind. Um, Cultivating curiosity. This is another big practice that works in application not only to ourselves. Why did I just do that? Why did I say that? Why do I always do that? And looking for the reason behind it but also an application to those outside us. Wow, why did my significant other just say that? Why did my partner do that? If we can look for other people's motivations, and we'll touch on it later, most all of our actions are driven by fear or by hope. And when we can see past it as a personal affront, we don't take things personally, we can see what's really going on with the other person, it fosters a deeper, healthier, stronger relationship. And the other big thing that we all know, and that is so hard to avoid in this modern life, is decreasing our exposure to media. If you're like me, I know one of my numbing things is to go to Instagram or to Facebook. Uh, scrolling through, media tends to have a pretty negative bias. Um, it amplifies a lot of my fears and my concerns. Using it in short controlled bursts, intentionally, that's fantastic. It can be a way to connect. But the way that we use social media and the news media, Um, checking CNN, checking Fox, checking MSNBC, looking for constant media feeds. We all know that the media runs on an endless loop. Checking it just once or twice a day, we can keep up to pace without increasing our stress load. Jonathan, you do such a great job talking about these points. (laughs)
2: <laughs> well, at the Center for Relationship Education, we do a lot to help provide skills that people can use for themselves, for their families, and th- this where we want to help you regulate what you can do for your family because we know that your family is one of the primary concerns that uh, EMS providers and EMS professionals have as they're doing this job to serve in their community. They're always asking themselves, how is what I'm doing right now? impacting the family that i'm wanting to go home to and wanting to spend time with but i'm missing out a lot of a uh, uh, connection with them because of this work and it's worth it because i get to be a part of of helping so many people but i want to do what i can to make it better and so one of the things that you can do to help regulate uh, specifically the relational impact of COVID 19 and uh, your workload currently uh, on your family is to be intentional That doesn't mean that you have to set aside. You know, we've got to have Thursday date night. It's got to be four hours of solid time. You don't have to do that. And we know that that's not an option. Uh, It's not an option in normal life. It's certainly not an option right now. But if you'll intentionally set aside 10 minutes to say, hey, you know what? I I don't know when it'll be today, but I would like to text back and forth with you for 10 minutes sometime today between calls wherever possible. Just can you keep your phone handy? Um, Can you be available? To, to say, I, I don't know when it will happen, but I would love to FaceTime with you today. I probably won't have more than five minutes to do it, but seeing your face and uh, being able to show you my face, let you know that I'm okay, that I'm thinking about you, that you're important, that this relationship is important. It goes a really long way, especially for those of us who are who are partnered up with individuals who are not responders. So they're doing the best they can as civilians to understand the life that we lead, but they don't. Because they're not living this life. They, they live it through their lens, which we will get to, uh, but they don't understand why you aren't wanting to pick up your phone, because you've just been exposed a number of times on a number of different calls, and the last thing you want to do is put your hand in your pocket and touch a device that's now going to be um, potentially uh, infected, as it were. So set aside some time, even if it's a small amount, and let the kids know, hey, I'm, I'm going to call you. Two minutes uh, before bedtime, best I can. I'm going to call you um, or I'm going to FaceTime with you. I'm going to send you an IM. Uh, let's just trade memes back and forth throughout the day wherever possible and know that even though it's short communication, I'm doing it because I want to stay connected to you because you matter to me. Our relationship important to me. Part of that really also is tied into setting expectations. Those expectations around what communication looks like, around what the day looks like, there's actually an expectations formula as it pertains uh, to the relationships that we have. It basically says, if you have an expectation and that expectation winds up being greater than the reality as you experience it, then there's going to be disappointment. So the best way to minimize that disappointment is to do everything you can to make sure that all the expectations that that your family has of you and that you have of your family are, are known and realistic and reasonable towards being met. But you have to set those expectations in advance or there's disappointment after the fact because they weren't met. It's also really valuable if you can acknowledge the situation for the other person, for the relationship. You, you're in the bus all day, every day, you're in the chopper, you're in the ER, you are helping on the front lines and we are so thankful that you are. But that doesn't mean that because you're on the front lines, that your family, every single member of your family, isn't also experiencing this trauma um, in their own way. So acknowledge that. Um, There's no value to the relationship in saying, well, I'm on the front lines every day, so you shouldn't be as scared as I am. I should be the more scared one. We all experience what we're experiencing. So acknowledging the other person's Uh, how the other person is experiencing the situation is so powerful to help them feel validated, to help them feel understood. They aren't trying to say that they are as exposed as you are. That's not what they're trying to say. They're just trying to say that they're scared. They are trying to say um, that they are um, in in as much danger as you are on a day-to-day basis while going to their job as an accountant or working from home or helping the kids with the schoolwork. But when you acknowledge how hard it must be for them to not have as much information to still be scared for themselves for the family and for you that goes a really long way acknowledge the impact that it's having on the relationship
0: and this is true for responders not only now in the current crisis but i think on a daily basis is that we go to work and we feel like we've got a partner we've got a crew we've got people who've got our backs we're trained we're in authority we have some control But when we leave, it's easy for us to forget that our families are concerned about what we're experiencing. They're not as familiar with what we experience, what our days are like, and they don't feel that sense of control. What they feel is fear. And there were two recent interactions I'd had with family members of responders that I think really drive that point home. One was with the wife of a fire chief who told me that when her husband was promoted to fire, Chief for the, the department, they went out to dinner to celebrate and she told him, I deleted 20 voicemails that I've been saving for you from you for years. He asked her, why are you saving voicemails? She told him that every day he left to go on shift to go out in the field to get on the rig, she was afraid it was going to be his last day and she wasn't going to see him again. And she wanted that to remember his voice by. Wow. So many of us don't have any idea. That's the depth of fear and concern that our family members have. The other story was from a flight medic. Who had been out with a coworker camping. The coworker had left some gear in his truck. He happened to be driving by his house. He knew the coworker was uh, flying that day, but he just thought, Hey, I'm going to knock on the door, drop off the gear with his wife. So he goes up, knocks on the door. The wife opens it and bursts into tears. Well, it turns out she's thinking it's the line of duty death notification. And of course they would have sent her husband's best friend to let her know. So I think this is something that we really need to be aware of, not only in this time of crisis but in our, our day-to-day lives as emergency responders that oftentimes what we do is challenging for our families. And when we don't speak to them openly, when we don't have conversations about this, that fear can really create a tremendous amount of stress for them.
2: And a, a part of the, that, that stress is if we have the ability to again, walk through the, how they're experiencing, what their expectations are, and then asking for their help. They may not know what their needs are, but if you will present a safe platform for them to address them, ask your family, how can I help you? I want to better understand what your needs are. I can't do everything from my rig. I can't do everything at the time that makes the most sense, but if you will let me know more what your needs are, I will do what I can to help make sure that those needs get met. And then similarly, let them know what your needs are. If it is your need, that when you get off the rig and you get into the house, nobody talks to you for 45 minutes. So your parasympathetic nervous system can reset after having nothing but literal bells and whistles going off all day for a 12-hour shift. This is the fifth uh, of, of the shift that you've taken in the last three days. Goodness. If you need that, let them know. Set that expectation and help your family meet your needs so you can be present and fully engaged when you are there.
0: And, oh, I'm sorry, and doing that empowers them. So even coming home and saying, I just need a hug. I just want to sit with you. I don't want to talk right now. Or I need some outdoor time. Will you go for a walk with me? That takes the burden of pressure. They want to help you. They want to do, to do the right thing. But in the absence of knowing what it is, if we can tell them, this is what I need. I need a walk. You want to go. I need some quiet. Just sit with me. And you are doing everything that I need is an incredibly empowering
2: interaction one of the downsides of not taking any of these steps is that it is very common very normal it's not healthy but it's very common that we will experience a really rough situation that impacts us in many negative ways and then we will immediately assign that situation to the people who are around us even though they didn't really have anything to do with it your your family had nothing to do with COVID-19 or this novel coronavirus had nothing to do with it, but if after the end of a really rough day, expectations weren't set, relationships weren't shored up, and you walk in and the first thing you feel is that level of annoyance and frustration with your day, and now I'm seeing these people, it's very common to transfer that annoyance and frustration to, to them. Be aware that we all do that to some degree, but the more aware of it we can be, the better we can be at moving to healthier interactions and acknowledging, well, hold on, hold on, hold on, I'm not actually frustrated with you. And the fact that the dishes are still in the sink, I'm just really stressed after a really long day. I'm just really hungry. I'm just really tired. That's what's going on. So move to that healthier place and encourage your family to do all the things that we talked about on the previous slide, because all of those things, sleep, nutrition, movement, outdoor time, The breath work kids can start learning that there's almost not uh, too young of an age where you can start teaching your kids how to do the breathing to calm themselves down. And decreasing home media exposure, especially for the family members who are looking to that to fill in the gaps of their knowledge of what your day looks like. Help them to do those things help to set the expectations and you and your family members can be in a much healthier place than otherwise. Now, here we talk about some of these vulnerabilities as they exist. And we just want to remind that it is hard to be angry with somebody for whom you have empathy. And if you've got empathy for someone else, because you better understand their situation, it helps you better understand that for the most part, what's really driving what's going on with them is a lack of information which has led to fear. And if you can empathize with that, even when frustrating things unfold, you can be more empathetic without having to do a lot more work. Well, and I
0: think, Jonathan, one of the big things with emergency responders is vulnerability is not culturally condoned. Um, We are trained Mm. as responders to be very discerning, to be very critical, to be skeptical, to be situationally aware, and to hone that negativity bias. We are all trained to look for what's the worst case scenario and how do we manage it, what is the likelihood of bad things happening on the scene and how to manage that. We are, are trained to go into scenes basically with shields up to be in a defensive mode, mm-hmm. to be hyper, hyper aware and vulnerability. I think it is one of the hardest things for us to engage in, but it's also one of the most rewarding for the reasons that you just mentioned. It's hard to be angry with somebody you have empathy for when we meet a significant other because we're frustrated or we're hungry or we're tired or a multitude of other reasons with anger, most likely what we're going to get back is anger. But the best way to diffuse mm. the situation is to act like hostage negotiators. <laughs> Come in vulnerable. Hey, I am sorry. I am just exhausted. I, I am maxed. I am overwhelmed. I'm so glad to see you. And it's, it's not something that's immediately intuitive, but vulnerability, being willing to show who we are and where we are is a great way to diffuse what could lead to a toxic situation into uh, an emotional outburst and, and argument. And it's, it's interesting that I've always found in my career that vulnerability isn't something that's really encouraged among us. Fire, EMS, law enforcement, dispatch, we all have a culture that is based in eating our own. We are afraid that if we show vulnerability, we'll be attacked. And granted, some of that's based on prior experience, for sure. It's not just a a conspiracy theory. But if we are willing to do that, to to move forward, especially in our personal relationships, the value and the reward from taking that step are just tremendous. Um, We know that the defensiveness that we come from doesn't encourage connection. It doesn't encourage communication. We know that we all are human, the people in the uniform, the people we love, the people we run on, and that we all have the same basic human needs. Among those, we have connection, we have communication, we have being known and to, to, to be seen and to see. We have the need to matter, to feel like we made a difference. And I think that's one thing that responders are really in danger of, especially in emergency medical provision, is that we think that the way we contribute is to be in control and to take care of everybody else. And we forget that allowing other people to be there for us helps them fulfill that same basic need and that if we're coming from a place where we're always the rescuer, we're always the helper, that's kind of a superior position, it's well-intentioned, but it doesn't encourage connection, it doesn't encourage honest, vulnerable communication, and it doesn't allow us to really be seen by those who love us. If we run the risk also for always putting up the facade that we're in control, we're in charge, that we feel like we're only loved for that, and that reinforces that facade, which moves us further from ourselves um, I'm sure many people are familiar with Brene Brown's work. She's just done an amazing job, particularly around vulnerability and shame. And I love her definition of vulnerability as, as it's uncertainty, it's risk, and it's emotional exposure. It's not weakness. It's our greatest measure of courage. And I, I think that's a great way to reframe it. And I think that is a way that really resonates with emergency responders because we are prided on our courage. We're, we pride ourselves on our ability to come in and take charge and make things better. But vulnerability as a measure of courage. Wow. It is so much more challenging to reach out and tell somebody, Hey, I'm struggling, I'm suffering than it is to just pop a beer, make a bad joke and, and sit on the sofa for a couple hours and Netflix. So I think that's really what our culture ultimately needs to do is redefine what courage is.
2: Allowing the people that are in your life and in your circle to help you because of that vulnerability, helps them to feel that they matter. It's an experience that you get to have almost every day, going out and doing everything you can to matter for all the people on these calls. But when you allow the shields to come down and connect in these vulnerable ways, yeah, there's risk in in the emotional exposure, but it allows them to feel like I matter. I I matter to my EMS uh, provider husband. I matter to my uh, EMS provider mom uh, or or dad. I was able to be there for them in a moment. It gives them an opportunity to experience on a, on a small scale uh, what you get to experience uh, much more regularly.
0: Absolutely. And I think one other point, and you and I have spoken about this in the past, is that oftentimes when we come home from a shift and we're fatigued and just wiped out and don't have anything left in us, if our significant other, or our family members pester, not pester, pepper us with questions like, what do you want for dinner? What do you want to do here? What do you want to do there? Our default response tends to be, I don't care. Where What we mean is, you know, I, I just don't have the capacity to care. I can't make a decision right now. But what it what lands, what our loved ones hear is, wow, you don't care about me. You don't care about the family. You don't care about our lives. And even just taking the time and having new awareness to change that too a, a bigger statement with, wow, that's a lot. I can't even decide right now. Convey what we intended to convey without risking damaging our relationships by sending the not-so-subtle message that we don't care about this side of our life, that it's more about our work side of life. And uh, that's just a trap I think I see very commonly across all the branches. Hmm.
2: Being able to reframe uh, some of those experiences and then those moments, even in the the question of what do you want for dinner, you know what babe i'm sorry i'm just so and then you you can pick anything from this tag cloud i'm so overwhelmed after the day i just had i'm so <laughs> lost after the day i just had i'm so tired and exhausted and angry at the at the call the last call that i just or the the series of calls that i just had could you please help me by handling these decisions for the next hour. I think at the end of dinner, I will probably be able to answer questions and provide opinions, but could you please help me by taking this off of my plate? Uh, it's not because I don't want to be involved. I just do not have the capacity and I don't want you to feel that the reason I'm not engaging is because I don't want to engage, but
0: I don't have the capacity
2: (laughs) to engage. Yeah.
0: Exactly. And allowing them to shine in that moment. It's like, Oh, okay. Your batteries are run down. Let me take over. I got this. And
2: what a great spin.
0: Right. Exactly. Yes. Oh, Brene Brown. And I really liked this in her call to courage. She talks about show up, be seen, answer the call. And I think as responders, we really provide ourselves on answering the calls at work and we forget that there's calls at home too. Um, when we respond, we ask the patient, what do you need? What's wrong? And we listen. Um, being home involves answering our loved one's calls, doing all the things we just talked about, pausing, non-reactively responding when we're confronted with anger or fear or frustration, and really meeting our people where they are, answering their calls, and making our own calls to them. It's, uh, I, just, I really love this piece. So much of what she does is really relevant for our population.
2: Well, oh, it's relevant for humans
0: we're human too the
2: the the number of fears that are um, driving us uh, in covid19 time is just an exponential lift over the number that are driving us in regular time Um, and if you get down to the pure motivation behind most human decisions we're making decision really uh, out of one of two places either hope uh, for this thing that we want or fear uh, that we will encounter this thing we don't want and so we make so many decisions trying to move towards the things that we want and being terrified of the things that we don't want to happen, however realistic it is on either side. uh, But specifically in times like this, if we aren't proactive, then those fears can grow and grow and grow to the place where they dominate so much of our life. So So many of the decisions that we make are no longer being made from a place of logic, or a place of strategy um, for, from a place of long-term thinking. They're simply in the moment decisions made to avoid an increasingly large list of what appear to be imminent dangers and fears heading our way. Um, the, the, the antidote to that is knowledge. The more you know, the less you fear. It's one of the one of the allures of hitting up the news cycle all the time. Oh, maybe, maybe now I'll get some new information that will make me feel better. Ooh, didn't Nope, that made me feel worse. Maybe now I'll get some new information that'll make me feel better. I'll bet you if I check it every 10 minutes, eventually I'll get some information that'll make me feel better. But the reality is if you can get more information around the situation, around your safety, around your family safety, around, uh, better protocols then the less fear you have, uh, the, the same reason that what you learned uh, in training, uh, in the academy on uh, how to properly lift a stretcher without throwing your back out, it's no longer something that you consider, uh, like, oh, I should probably remember those. Tra-. No, it's just natural, part of how you operate. Because you no longer fear that that's going to be how you wind up getting hurt on the job because you have enough information around that. So when and it comes you're to those empowered fears, by
0: that information.
2: Yeah. Mm-hmm and And th- that empowerment helps you allow to be able to move forward in, towards healthier things uh, away from uh, less healthy less optimally healthy uh, choices uh, and actions that we make um, here here are some ideas uh, that will be beneficial to you if you have found yourself being dominated by fear. Here are some things that you can do to healthily move you forward instead of the more traditional things that we often do, which are really fall under the umbrella of numbing um, or escapism, things that we're, um, I don't know how to feel better. So I'm just going to totally mentally and emotionally check out into exactly. any level of uh, activity. And here's some steps, Rhonda. Can well, walk and you I through. love this
0: practice. Yeah. Oh, this practice, fear binding, fear scribing, fear setting. There's a lot of different names for it. And it, what it really does is helps us re-regulate ourselves and help send us on that path that Jonathan just talked about where we're taking conscious, intentional action toward resolving our fears, to moving that barrier out of our way rather than just numbing or scrambling and trying to overload ourselves with input. So fear-binding, scribing, setting, write your fears down. Just sit down. What are all the things that I'm really afraid of right now? Then go back to each one. Write the worst case, the best case scenario and use your imagination. The best case can be, well, I might come across a lottery ticket and realize that it's a $160 million winner. Great. Worst case, I could die. Okay. Now let's look and rate how likely those are to happen. Really put some context in those and put some metrics around it. We all are are used to drug dosages. We're used to making calculations. Putting those numbers down can help bring these fears out of the amorphous monster shape they are in our head down into something that we can manage. List the actions you can take to influence the outcome. Okay, if this is the worst case scenario, what can I do to influence that outcome? What can I do to prevent it? If this is the best case scenario, what can I do to encourage that to happen, to make that more likely? And then the other big thing is really to reflect back on ourselves. We've all had significant challenges in our past. And think back to some of those because this can be really empowering. What about you? What skills, what traits, what character factors did you utilize to get yourself out of those significant challenges, to get past them? And how can you implement those, your strengths, in managing this fear and these situations right now?
2: This is a a pretty fun slide uh, because it it helps us to remember that even in the midst of a pandemic, uh, we have so much that we can be really grateful for. And gratitude can help us to move our mindset by helping our brain get into the habit of looking for the positives rather than the negatives, which are, in fact, they are a side effect of doing this job and doing it well is you're always looking for the thing that is wrong that you can fix, but it's hard to turn that off. So when there isn't something that needs to be fixed, we're still looking for things that are wrong with the ability to, to write our gratitudes down things we are grateful for, for ourselves, and encourage our family to do the same, then we can adjust that, um, that automatic uh, search for the negative to be more of an automatic search for the positive, even in rough situations. And there is uh, no end uh, to the value that comes from being able to see, um, positive, uh, healthy, and uh, to have hope in the midst of any situation.
0: The great thing, I know we've all been flooded with information about gratitude. Um, Practicing gratitude does draw our attention to the positive, like you highlighted. In order to feel gratitude for something, we have to be aware and be present in that moment, which keeps us from running into the future fears or the past regrets. But one of the things we really miss is speaking gratitudes to others. We might notice, oh, you know, my, my boyfriend did this thing for me. It was really nice. And not tell him. Or my wife wow, that was really amazing the way she did that, but we don't tell her. So speaking our gratitudes to others, telling someone what we're grateful for or what we appreciate about them, makes us both feel better. It lowers our defenses on both sides. It builds trust. It builds connection. And it's ultimately a form of vulnerability. And it is so easy to practice. I know for myself, so many times during the day, I think something nice about somebody, even if it's just, hey, that color looks really great on you. Or, wow, that was masterfully done something and I've encouraged myself over the past couple years to really speak those things out loud and it is amazing the response you get from people when they feel appreciated and valued and seen and they are more likely to see you in that positive light also.
2: It's a lot easier to decrease relationship conflict when an underlying foundation of that relationship has more layers of gratitude in both directions. Because you're much more likely to give each other the benefit of the doubt in a situation where I might have taken what you just said in a way that got us into a conflict today. But I have enough um, examples of you being really appreciative and thankful and gracious and vulnerable with me to know who you are well enough to know that even though I could have taken it in this way that would have been troublesome for us, That's not what you meant you meant it this other way and the fact that you didn't catch that it could have gone the other way is now something we can laugh about instead of something that we're going to fight about great so
0: in summary um these times are really an opportunity to strengthen our connection it is great challenge but it's also opportunity many of our daily distractions and our obligations have been stripped away we now have a lot more time in many cases with our loved ones than we ever thought we'd have, maybe some days more than we want to have, but, but still, this gives us an opportunity to reframe our relationships and to bolster their foundations moving forward. We can choose whether to replace the time taken up by daily distractions and obligations with fear, or we can maximize this time and more fully connect with those who mean the most to us. Um, we don't grow in times of complacency. Um, we sure enjoy those times of complacency. But really, this is an opportunity and, and a mind shift, um, a framing shift, like we talked about earlier on the slides. And, and we can reap the benefits of this on the other side when we return to whatever the new normal is.
2: I had an amazing coach in college, and he said something that stuck with me. And it's, um, I think, just really present, um, relevant for today, which is every day we get better or we get worse. We do not stay the same. The, the idea that, well, I can just coast in my relationship. No, we're good. We're good. We're just going to coast now. Or uh, I can just coast in my level of skill. Um, th- that's not really a thing. Uh, just like inflation, if you put $100 under the mattress, well, it was $100, but it's not worth as much 10 years from now if you didn't do something else with it. And the same goes with the relationship skills. If You've got relationship skills, but you didn't do anything with them then 10 years from now, while you have those relationship skills, they aren't worth very much in the context of that relationship. So to have this opportunity, and it is. It's a challenging space that we live in. But to have this opportunity is a a time when we can focus on the things that really are important, your health, your safety, your family's health, your your family's safety. But the relational wellness between uh, everyone uh, can go a long way if we will take a small amount of time and focus it on the things that are very important and a strategy to make those relationships uh, healthier all the way around. So if you'd like to reach out to us, um, we'd love to hear from you. I'm Jonathan Dickerson with the Center for Relationship Education. My email right there, Jonathan, myrelationshipcenter.org. And um, Rhonda, uh, what an amazing thank you for this opportunity to connect with you, Rhonda. Uh, I'm excited for people to reach out to you and uh, get some more details on the support that uh, you and Responder Strong offer.
0: Fantastic. And again, I'm Rhonda Kelly with Global Medical Response and also Responder Strong. We are an initiative to improve mental health support for responders and their families. Please check us out. We try to post a lot of resources that are relevant to both responders and their families. Thanks so much for your time, and always a pleasure, Jonathan.
1: Okay, thank you so much to Jonathan and Rhonda. We are now going to open up the discussion to our attendees, and we're gonna try to get through as many as we can in the remaining time today. Questions are already coming in, so we will dive right in. We've had a few coming in, uh, Jonathan and Rhonda, uh, relating to um, partners and, uh, and family relationships. So I'll start with the first one here. There are times when I can just about hear the anger in my husband's voice when he discusses what happens when I come in contact with a COVID-19 patient. I know it's uh, worry and not anger, but I don't know what to say to him. There are so many unknowns. Do you have any uh, comments or uh, advice for that situation?
0: Absolutely. Um, Congratulations to the individual who submitted that. It sounds like she's already coming from a non-reactive position and she's seeing what's really behind the anger which is something we discussed in the webinar. When we meet anger with anger, it's destructive. It's not only non-productive, it's destructive. In this case, it really does sound like he's fearful and that he is worried. And I think one of the best approaches you can do is just calmly respond to him. I understand you're concerned. Let's talk about that. What are your fears? What are you worried about? In many cases, we just assume that our significant others understand precautions, understand what droplet transmission means understand how our workplace flow goes, understand our supports and the, the precautions we take, when many times our, our family members and our significant others have no idea that's what our day is like and that those are the things we think about. So being able to go back to them and sit down and say, hey, what is it that, really, that you're really concerned and fear, fearful of? And fill in those blanks for them. The human mind likes closure, likes to have everything tied up nice and neatly. So when there are gaps in our understanding, Our minds tend to fill those in, and oftentimes, they fill them in with the worst-case scenario. If you can sit down with him, address that he has a right to be concerned, talk to him about what those concerns really are, and then provide some factual information that can support him and let him know that, hey, you know, I I am not just out there willy-nilly. I'm not just taking risks. I, I have a measured and calculated response to all this. I'm trained to deal with this. And I am very, very concerned about not only my well-being in the workplace, but our relationship's well-being and your well-being in um, in the home.
1: Thank you, Rhonda. Next one is a good uh, kind of a follow-up to that. How do we balance our desire to do our jobs as paramedics and also protect our families? Some of my family members are demanding that I stop treating patients.
0: Ah, uh, And we are hearing that a lot. And I think it really goes back to that comment that I just made about, Many of our family members don't understand the precautions. They perhaps don't understand the routes of transmission. They don't understand what droplet transmission is. They don't understand fomites, infected surfaces, and touching your face. And I think the other big thing that a lot of the general population, family members included, don't understand is this is now community-based. Hiding from it, refusing to treat patients, doesn't protect us. We all know that in times of intense fear and negative emotions, we try to discharge that negative emotion with either shaming ourselves or blaming other people or assigning the danger to one specific thing that makes it feel like it's more manageable to us. Oh, if you just weren't treating patients, you'd be safe and we'd be safe too. Logically, that's not true. And I think being able to respond to the families and tell them, this is community-based. The best thing I can do to keep us safe is to continue in my job taking all the right precautions, the appropriate precautions, and going out there to help the people who are really sick and symptomatic to pull them out of the general population. So we're starting to contain the disease more effectively. And also informing them, hey, you know, I'm not gonna be safer if I'm just not treating patients. The ways we can make ourselves safer are to follow the, the current guidelines, which granted are, are in development as we learn more about the disease those are changing, but to talk to them more about, be careful what surfaces you touch. Don't touch your face, your nose, your eyes, your mouth. Wash your hands frequently. Sanitize when you can. Stay away from people who are coughing, but explain also the social distancing guidelines that there are some people who are asymptomatic themselves that can still shed the virus. This is why it's so important to stay safe. Not treating patients isn't going to make me safer. All of us following these practices are, are what's going to make us safer, while at the same time hearing their true concerns and being supportive of them, not rejecting them.
1: We have quite a few questions coming in related to uh, rest and nutrition. Can you teach me some ways to help me fall asleep and then what to do if I can't stay asleep?
0: Ah, sleep. That's one of the big challenges in emergency response work in quote-unquote normal days. It's definitely more of a challenge now. A lot of the advice is it falls into the category where it is simple but it might not be easy. One of the things I've struggled with over my career is that my mind just gets going. It spins and I cannot sleep. And I feel that anxiety in my body, just that electric kind of energetic feeling. In those cases, I tend to do one of two things. When my mind is spinning, I sit down and write all the things that are on my mind, just kind of free flow. Sometimes it looks like a to-do list. Sometimes it just looks like a long, rambling, written communication. But what that does is it allows our brain to acknowledge, hey, these concerns, these things that are in my head, they're being addressed. The brain doesn't really distinguish between writing something down and actually having taken care of it. So that allows our mind to calm down a little bit. In the mind-body loop, it can allow our bodies to have less tension and to start to relax and calm. When I feel that electric kind of energy inside me, that's just anxiety that I can't sleep, I usually look for physical outlets and oftentimes combine the physical with the the journaling or the writing down of my concerns. Um, When I was on shift in between calls, if I couldn't get back to sleep, I would do something, a burst of energy, burpees, run around the station, the ambulance, wherever I was, push-ups, just something to burn through that sympathetic nervous system response and allow my body to calm down. The other thing that I really like, and I cannot overstate the importance and the effectiveness of it for responders, especially if you're stuck in an ambulance and you can't get out and run around, you don't have something handy to write down all your concerns on, is deep breathing practices. And as medics and as EMTs, as medical providers, we understand the balance of the sympathetic and the parasympathetic nervous system. The reason deep breathing works, and I think this is lost on a lot of people is because it triggers the vagus nerve and it helps forcibly shift us from sympathetic overdrive into more of a parasympathetic tone. My favorite exercise with deep breathing, you can do it anywhere. Slow deep inhale through the nose for a count of four. Then stop, pause when you've got the full depth of inhale and follow it with a slow, prolonged exhale. It can be through your nose or through your mouth to a count of six, it's that prolonged exhale that really fires up the vagus nerve and helps us to relax and to calm. Deep breathing is something you can do throughout the day whenever you feel like you're starting to ramp up. It can help prevent the cumulative um, accumulation of sympathetic nervous system hormones and help us maintain greater levels of calm throughout our shift so that we reset to a baseline or close to it before we hit another stressor. Talking about sleep in particular, there's some things we can do, making sure that the room we're sleeping in or wherever we're sleeping is cool. Research shows 64 to 68 degrees is the norm. Yeah, sometimes we can do that. Sometimes we can't. Making sure that it's as dark as possible, especially for responders who are trained to be hyper alert, to respond to lights, to respond to tones. Make sure that the room we're in is dark, whether that means you use room darkening blinds or you use an eye mask. anything you can do to make your environment darker, making sure that your environment is quiet. Um, If it's not possible to have it be quiet, make sure that there is a steady kind of staticky background noise that muffles the irregular sounds that your mind is going to latch onto thinking that it's the precursor to a tone or hearing the mic click on the radio. That can be done with a fan, with a humidifier, with a white noise machine. If you can just get a baseline level, your brain will just acknowledge this is what baseline is and not wake you up for every little disturbance off of it. Other things we can do is um, make sure we're in as comfortable a sleep environment as possible. Sometimes if we have a bed partner, that means asking that bed partner to sleep somewhere else or going to sleep somewhere else ourselves. Whether that person snores or is restless, kicks, um, is a hot sleeper (laughs) that you just feel the heat radiating off of, those are all things that can disturb your sleep quality rest is important. If you need to go to a sofa or to another bed to do that, it's worth it and your relationship will probably benefit from that. It's called a sleep divorce, a little uh, intensive term for it, but can really benefit from that separation. If I can't stay asleep, all the recommendations that I've seen out there say, if you can't sleep, don't stay in bed tossing and turning because your mind will start to associate the bed as being the place where you just toss and turn, and your mind, turn and your mind is racing. Get up and go do something else to distract you, whether that's gentle stretching to release the tension in your body, deep breathing exercises to help calm yourself down, writing out a to do list or journaling what's bothering you. Just get up and go do that. If you can watch, um, if you can um, read a book, something that engages your mind and keeps you focused, which is actually a meditative practice if you're absorbed in it, do not turn on the news. Um, try not to watch anything that's going to amp your nervous system. Don't watch adventure movies. Definitely don't watch pandemic movies. Don't watch things that are really just going to fire you up emotionally. Try to do things that calm you down. But definitely get up out of bed until you feel tired again. Um, so, there, again, these are, are simple things. They're not always easy to enact in our lives. But the more we can, the better our sleep's going to be. Oh, the other big thing Thanks. around that... Um, if I, I, I was remembered sure. of not mentioning this, caffeine. We all know we like to go to the EMS lounges that have the best snacks. And oftentimes by best, we mean Munster and Red Bull and sugar. All that stuff um, interferes with our sleep. So try to cut out caffeine at least six hours before you try to go to sleep. Try and cut down on your sugar intake and try to avoid your exposure to bright lights, really limiting it as much as possible in the uh, two or three hours before you go to sleep.
1: Staying on the topic of rest for a bit, um, and, and the need for sufficient rest with the pandemic going full tilt, is it easy to? It is so easy to entrench ourselves into the pandemic, and if we take any time off, we get criticized by our colleagues. How do we propagate the need for emotional and physical rest and not feel guilty about it?
0: Ah, that is a great question, and you're right; it ties into all these other health concerns. So in our culture, I think oftentimes in the emergency response world, we try to measure our value, our our productivity by the hours that we put in. And that's really a poor measure. We are the greatest, humans are the greatest asset in the emergency response system. We are not automatons. We are not batteries that have endless power supplies. We need to recharge ourselves. There's this fallacy that we can keep going for hours and hours on end without recharging ourselves and that the quality of our work isn't going to suffer, that's absolutely not true. The human machine requires breaks mentally, emotionally, and physically throughout the course of the shift, whether it's 12 hours, 24 hours, 48 hours, whatever our schedule is. Um, I think the best thing we can do about this is if we're criticized by our colleagues, being able to address it and say, hey, I know I'm going to be better mentally, emotionally, and physically. I'm also gonna be better professionally if I just take this time out for myself. I need it and I think you need it too. Are you taking care of yourself? It really does come back to self-care. This is not a sprint, it is a marathon. And we can't just expect that we can go 48 hours nonstop, no sleep, powered by energy drinks, and that we're still gonna be able to do that next week, next set, the set after that, next month. This is really the long haul. So we, self-care is essential. We are going to be a lot less disruptive to our overall productivity and to the workplace. If we take small breaks here and there to keep ourselves going, Than we're going to be if we just drive ourselves to the point where we burn out and crash and are destructive to our systems and to our efforts. It's tough, but we need to go against the culture in this place. Groupthink and this uh, mentality that more is better is destructive to us.
1: All right, thank you. Let's uh, switch gears slightly and talk about nutrition. Dylan is listening uh, and asks, do you have any good recommendations for fast snacks on the ambulance due to the lack of nutrition in EMS lounges?
0: Yes. Um, Everybody's nutritional requirements are a little bit different. You know, vegans do great on vegan diets. I I really think that would be the death of me. But yeah, more power to them. But what um, so the point on this is getting to know your body and what fuels you. For me personally, I like having nuts. Nuts are full of fat. They're also got protein in it. They've got a lot of nutrients and they're very, very satiating. So a handful of nuts can power me to a couple hours. I like to also bring things that are easy to snack on. Bananas are one thing that jumps to mind. You can peel the peel, eat the fruit and um, it's more hygienic, and it's easy to transport. Um, sandwiches, having a couple sandwiches ready-made, if that's what you, you enjoy and you find that your body responds well to. Something you can grab and go that doesn't need a microwave, doesn't need a freezer, doesn't need a refrigerator. Um, other things are snack bars, trying to look for the ones that are more whole foods, that don't have a lot of sugar in them, whether that sugar is listed as corn syrup, rice syrup, high-fructose corn syrup, um, agave, whatever it is making sure that we're getting a good blend of protein and fat and healthy carbs for us. Um, Other meals that can be packed up or or snacks that can be really beneficial to us are protein shakes or nutritional shakes. You can mix those up in a shaker bottle, throw some ice in with them, and they'll be good for for 12 hours if you need so that you can have something that is a good mix of protein, fats, and carbs. Um, I'm a little bit of a weirdo about vegetables. I love green smoothies. I love to take all the vegetables that I know I should eat, but I'm probably not going to get to eat during my shift. Throw them into a blender with some source of fat, whether that's an avocado or coconut oil, throw maybe a little bit of protein powder in there that has some flavor because sometimes the green smoothies can get a little grassy. Um, I remember I tried to sell my crew on it a couple years ago and uh, all I uh accomplished with getting them convinced that my favorite flavors were grass and dirt, but you can make those things taste healthy or taste good and be healthy at the same time. Tons of recipes online. Spices are a great way to add um, good nutrition that can help keep our immune system boosted, be readily accessible again in a a smoothie or a shaker bottle. Um, But again, it goes back to what food really powers you and what can you eat as is without requiring additional heating or freezing or or, uh, refrigeration during your shift.
1: Thanks Rhonda, we have some questions coming in related to personal relationships and we can bring Jonathan into the discussion here. Um, I'm worried about my coworkers and my partner's ability to cope. What should I look for in their behavior and how can I help them?
2: That is a, a multifaceted question, but it's a really good one. Uh, let's see if I can work through kind of each of those components here. Uh, worried about my partner and the co- coworkers ability to cope. So kind of first up is one of the best ways to assess the ability of others to cope is to acknowledge your own struggles. If you approach someone and say, Hey, you seem like you're having a really sucky day or you seem like you are struggling hardcore, you probably aren't going to get much of a response from that. But if you instead were to approach them and say, Oh man, this is rough. I have really been struggling with handling all of this. I've been trying this. I've been trying that I'm just still not feeling settled. What would you suggest that I do to make sure I stay healthy right now? You, you put yourself in the position to be vulnerable. You put yourself in the position to request their help. You've now normalized the process of being vulnerable and requesting help. You've also acknowledged to them that to you, they are a safe space, which means they are a person who you trust to help you with this struggle. If you do that, then you are much more likely to get information from them about how they're doing and how ready for coping they are. Uh, Kind of second up, um, if you're looking, the the specifics that you're looking for uh, in behavior are are shifts in personality, decreases in the quantity, uh, quality or type of communication, any changes in tone of the conversation, Anything that indicates a a shift in mindset that is not simply a shift in workload. So uh, all of a sudden, your 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 partner who is very talkative hasn't really been talking that much. And when they have been saying things, the tone of what they are saying isn't just referencing that they are tired and that they feel uh, overwhelmed. It's referencing that this is the way it's going to be forever. It's never going to get better. They've stopped talking about anything having to do with their future. Um, We've no longer having conversations about, you know, saving up for the place that we're going on vacation, any of the things that had been kind of their go-to, really excited about pieces of who they are and portions of their future life. When those disappear, that's definitely something that we want to be aware of. Uh, Again, if we have somebody who um, maybe isn't talking, wasn't talking as much, and now they're talking all the time, but it sounds like they're kind of in a loop. We're saying the same things over and over again, and none of them sound particularly positive or healthy. Of course, this is a really rough time. So we're not expecting everybody to, no, nobody's gonna be singing Kumbaya, the whole shift right now, that's, that, that's un, unreasonable. But if all of a sudden, really the only phrases that we can get out of them uh, are related to how bad things are uh, over and over and over, and it's not always gonna be this way, that's going to be something that we, that we wanna address. If we can get them to engage in their own feelings right now, it, it is tougher now than it is six months ago, but it is not impossible um, if you will open up with kind of where where you're at. Again, creating that safe space for them to to recognize you talking about you, gives them permission to talk about them, and hear more from their perspective if you can get that out of them. Um, It it can be really helpful for your coworkers and for your partner uh, if you can acknowledge that kind of one of the best ways to to help them is for you to take care of you. It's the same strategy for helping a patient. You're going to have a really difficult time showing up on a call and being present for them if while you are doing that, you are nursing a broken leg. It's doable, but it's really tough to be your best. And so similarly, you're going to need to make sure that you are finding the things for yourself to to regulate, to decompress, to focus, to find the value in uh, each day, but also in the people that are around you and in the future on the other side of this, uh, because this too shall pass. We are going to get to the other side of it, but it's going to be a lot tougher to transition into the life that we're all hoping for if we lost sight of why are we doing all of this? Well, we're doing all this to get back to the normal life where we have vacations and we have family coming to visit and we get to go to graduations. All those things that are valid and, uh, and beneficial. So keep an eye out for those changes. Open yourself up to be vulnerable, to create the safe space to help them be vulnerable and be in the business of taking care of yourself so that you can be there to take care of them um, in, in, in part simply by asking hey, I I was going to go do this for me while I'm going to do my deep breaths that Rhonda just taught us about. Or um, I'm going to uh, order on Amazon one of those white noise machines for my house. Do you need one of those? But by by presenting a solution that you're using to help you as something that you can use to help them, again, it it helps to put them in a different place, but also acknowledge that you are one of the the places in their life, one of the people in their life who's there to help them and is not just a, Able to, but is really willing to, uh, even as you're still trying to help yourself and uh, be helped.
1: Thanks, Jonathan. That segues nicely into our next question here. And you and you talked a lot about this. How do we open up to others about our hardships and emotions that we experience in our industry, without dumping on or draining the person who's being there for us?
0: Can I jump in That's on this, Jonathan? Quick. You? Yeah. Please. I'll- and And this i I had this conversation with somebody just a couple of days ago. I think one of the things as emergency responders and emergency medical professionals that we fall into a trap is that when someone asks us about our experience, we fall into the default mindset of report writing, after action reviews, narratives, and we start to talk about who, what, where, what I smelled, what I saw, where I put the tube, where I put the needle, things like that details that. Oftentimes, and I, I'm pretty sure we've all experienced that, are shocking to people who aren't in the profession and kind of off-putting. We read their response and then we internalize that we did or said something wrong or that we can't, we can't reach out to this person for help. I think what we really consciously need to do is shift for, around to this person doesn't want to hear the details. This person doesn't have the context for the details. But what I can share, because we both share this in common, being human, is how I feel. Wow. I am physically exhausted. I'm really upset about a couple things I saw last night. I feel like I was helpless. I don't feel like I made the situation better. I feel, I feel, I feel. And that sets the stage for them to meet us because everybody's had those feelings around different circumstances, but it provides a a ground in common for people to connect with us without being dumped on or, or drained by the actual visual experience, sensory experience and details that yeah, we're aware of, but really what we need to cope with is that, that shared emotional response.
2: I also think it can be really helpful. Um, th- thank you for that, Ron, it's, it's spot on, but I, I think it can be really helpful if we remember to ask for permission, uh, but also um, to uh, give acknowledgement and appreciation. So that, um, uh, you know, hey, is it okay person who has been helpful at, for me in the past and person who's been there for. Is it okay if I share with you what's going on? If they give you permission, you say, Hey, I, I don't want you to know the details about it, but yeah, here's the emotions around it. And then, wow, thank you so much for listening. I feel better. That really helped me. I'm really glad that you're in my life. Um, you also have the ability to look for other ways that you can do that, that aren't necessarily uh, face-to-face or over the phone. In a voicemail or facetime um, but to say hey look I, I i need to get some of these feelings out and it always works better for me if i get them out verbally i'm a verbal processor or just talking it through helps me out so i'm going to call you in two minutes or five minutes or ten minutes and i don't want you to answer i'm going to leave you a long rambly winding nonsensical voicemail as i try and process all of this out you can get it, you can listen to it, you can delete it, we can never talk about it, um, or you can never listen to it and delete it before you do. But I I wanted you to know you're somebody who I trust and whose opinion that I value and you being involved in this process means a great deal for me, even if you never listen to it and to give them that freedom to say, well, I can listen to it and talk about it, or I can listen to it and never talk about it, or I can not listen to it and never talk about it. And I'm still able to be a part of helping them can be uh, beneficial again for the relationship, but also provide both, both parties the safety to engage in uh, healthy behavior for them that still helps you process some of those hardships and some of those emotions without uh, draining the other person uh, if they give you permission to to leave them that voicemail.
1: Thank you, Jonathan. Um, So many EMS providers are are, uh, type A. They're overachievers. They want to help. They have trouble saying no. Our next question really hits on that. I tend to jump in with both feet into everything I do. I have a full-time EMS job but would also like to help as a volunteer on my off time? How do I balance this?
0: Ah, um, I think you hit the nail on the head. A lot of responders have that tendency to jump in with both feet to everything we do. Um, I know I've been there who wants to play in the shallow end when you can jump right into the deep end of the pool. The problem with that is sustainability. And we talked about this earlier with personal sustainability. This isn't a sprint, it is a marathon. I don't know where um, these providers are working, they may or may not be in hotspot areas. It might be that the area they're working in is is likely to become a hotspot in the future. We all need to take personal responsibility make sure we're taking the best care of ourselves that we can now and that we're pacing ourselves to be able to perform when the demand really hits. I understand the motivation wanting to volunteer on the off time, I would just caution everybody to make sure that whatever you do to volunteer is not having a negative impact on your self-care and on your overall well-being. Find something and scale it to what you can manage, whether that's reaching out to an elderly neighbor and doing their grocery shopping for them, taking care of yard work for them, going over to visit with them. If it is um, going to a food bank to help hand out items, if it is making donations, you know there are a lot of different ways to contribute. And I think it's very individual for each person. Look at your capacity look at the demands that are on your time now. You might just be working a regular shift schedule now, but in two weeks, are you going to be doing mandatory overtime? And are you allowing yourself the, the capacity to charge yourself up prior to that? So I think it's it just takes a lot of conscious decision and focusing not only on what can I do today, but what am I going to be able to continue to do in the weeks and months to come?
1: A lot of our attendees are being uh, quite candid in their uh, remarks and their questions today which is encouraging our next um, uh, question i've had spells of breaking into tears which is totally unlike me why is this happening right now
0: that is a big sign of a stress response it's a sign of being overwhelmed and i think that goes back to an expected outcome when we are not paying attention to our personal needs and our personal boundaries and many times in responders that comes out of a desire to help, that comes out of a really sincere place. And our culture encourages us to be martyrs, put everybody ahead of us, I, I'll be okay, I'll get, I'll make do, I'll get by. Um, when we get to the point where we're, we're crying, it's no different than the point when we're lashing out in anger, they're just different manifestations of that that sense of overwhelm. I think for each individual it comes back to to recentering, regrouping, acknowledging, what do I need in my life? Um, we mentioned this during the presentation, the Center for Nonviolent Communication does a really good job of outlining basic human needs that are non-negotiable for all of us. And when we're in this state of overwhelm and we're not able to think as clearly or as logically as we would like, looking at a list like that to say, huh, yeah, that whole category is missing in my life right now. Yep, I'm not doing these things to be able to identify those and address them. And sometimes it might be I'm not getting enough social time with my family or with my friends. Maybe it's I'm not getting enough physical activity. Maybe it's I'm not getting enough sleep. Maybe it's my self-talk. Maybe I'm beating myself up. And I think this is one of the questions that's coming is oftentimes we like to judge our contribution and our value on calls by the outcome forgetting that oftentimes when 911 is dialed, the cards have already been dealt. All we can go in is do what we can do and make the best of the situation. So what I'm saying with this is to recognize that when we walk into a core and we're not able to resuscitate the patient, it results in a field pronouncement, acknowledging this isn't a failure because it's a field pronouncement. What are the things that I did right? What were the things that I'm proud of on that call? Did I deliver the death notification in a compassionate and empathetic way? Did I make somebody in the family feel seen and heard? Was I able to sit with them in their grief silently without judging, giving them safe space and acknowledging that those are really, really valuable things that you did and those only happened because it was you and you were there. Um, So I think that's a good way to fend off the negative self-talk because that leads to a downward spiral of I'm not good at my job, I'm not doing very well, we get more stressed and we start to not do as good at our job. but yeah, back to your original question. Tears, any excessive emotional response is definitely a sign of overwhelm. And it's incumbent upon each of us to figure out where's that overwhelm coming for us and to supplement our self-care in a way that can help us regroup. Jonathan, do you have anything to say on that?
2: I appreciate you uh, walking through that. That was uh, That was great.
1: Let's talk about um, coming to terms with the dangers of the job. The, the next uh, question here, is it, is it wrong of me to say that the danger we are being put in is beyond what I signed up for? This is not a very popular opinion right now. Any
2: thoughts on that?
0: Uh, I'm hearing that a lot. And first off, none of our feelings are ever wrong. So it's not wrong of you to have that feeling, to have that thought. What I would encourage is to go beyond that and figure out what's triggering that feeling or that thought. Do you feel unsupported by your organization? Do you feel like you are you don't have enough access to the right PPE so that you're not protected and safe? Do you feel like you are getting a lot of negative feedback from your family that's causing you to rethink what what your situation is right now and if this is really what you wanna be doing with your life? Look at what what's causing you to feel like the danger is beyond what you signed up for. I think in this time of, of media hype, it's easy for us to forget that this, although COVID 19 is new to us, viruses and viral transmission are not. We come into contact with flu patients, with cold patients, with HIV and hepatitis patients all the time. We know how to protect ourselves. So this danger, I think it's being magnified. I think it's amplified because it's front and center and because it is. Uh, as a pandemic, hard to get bigger than that, um, but really reminding ourselves that the ways we protect ourselves from diseases that are spread by droplet precautions are all the same. We know how to do this, and really making sure that we're diligent and those around us are also diligent and taking the right protective measures can kind of minimize that impression of danger. I think we're feeling like it must be significantly more danger than we're usually accustomed to. It is definitely more widespread, but I'd argue that it's in each individual circumstance, it's the same amount of danger. We're just encountering it more often Um, and really trying to reframe that and putting it into a more manageable context in your head. Um, The other thing I would caution going back to the self-talk is don't beat yourself up to thinking that, explore it. it. Your feelings are valid. There's a reason you're feeling that way and work on what you can control, what you can change to give you greater peace of mind. And if you ultimately decide that, wow, I, for whatever reason and to the point where I can't function well in my capacity and I feel like I need to pull back, I need to take care of myself because I'm, I'm worried that I'm going to become a destructive force or not be able to pull my own weight, then that is fine. If you need to step away, step away. Don't judge yourself. Um, the team is only as strong as, as each of its members. Um, if you can find ways that really rejuvenate you and reinforce you and make you feel safe, make you feel like you're contributing. Fantastic. If you can't, that's okay. Step back.
1: Dave is listening in today and says, I happen to be out of work right now from my normal EMS job, and I feel absolutely helpless. What can I do to get over this feeling?
0: Mm. I'm curious why Dave's out of his normal EMS job. If it's due to an injury or um, some other issue, if he's in isolation or quarantine, um, I think this is really a particularly challenging time for people who used to be on the front lines, used to be doctors, nurses, medics, EMTs, and are transitioned to other roles, whether that role is retirement or a different occupational role, feeling like they're not contributing as much as those on the front lines and feeling like they're not doing enough to support them. It kind of sounds like that's where Dave is coming from. And I think part of that issue comes from having a very very narrow definition of what's a valuable contribution, there are tons of ways to contribute, whether that's going back to a question a couple questions ago about volunteering in the community, whether it is volunteering in a support role in the EMS industry, volunteering in a support role in the hospitals. There are lots of different ways to contribute. I don't know what community Dave's in, but I would encourage him to really broaden his perspective on what's what's beneficial and what's valuable, and look for what matches his skill set, his availability, his physical abilities, and pursue that. We can achieve the same sense of meaning and purpose in our lives through different avenues than what we were accustomed to um, in the uniform, on the front line, in the rig. There's other ways to find meaning and purpose. And, And going back to the basic human needs, the Center for Nonviolent Communication really puts those up front. And we know looking at emergency response and some of the issues that run rampant in our profession is that suicidality has been a big thing. The last thing somebody loses when they get to that point is that sense of meaning and purpose and hope. And that's one of the things that I think can really come from, from Dave's situation is finding something that gives your life meaning and purpose, however you can contribute, bolsters your sense of hope. And it makes you more resilient and it makes you more able to help other people, whether you're there as a peer or you're there as a volunteer or you're there as a paid worker.
2: I think Dave's in a really unique situation because because he is um, connected strongly uh, to the EMS community, but also um, now uh, functioning as a civilian. Um, Please don't hear that you're helpless, Dave. Uh, You have the ability to educate the civilian population that is uh, in your community in a way that if you were on the job in a rig right now, You wouldn't have the time um, or the ability to do, but now you have the ability to kind of reach out to your neighbors on the phone text the folks on your block and say, hey, you know what, Um, I just want to share some information with you. As Rhonda alluded earlier, there's so much knowledge that you have, uh, Dave, about EMS procedures and protocols that if more people in the civilian world had that information, they'd say, oh, Oh, I didn't know that. That's really helpful. I'm less stressed because I have that information. That's common knowledge to you, but just isn't common knowledge to civilians. Similarly, you now have the time and the bandwidth, even though you're thinking, well, it's not the same as being on a rig. If you were to send a text message or leave a voicemail or shoot an email uh, to all of the people who you know that are working in EMS right now, and just say hey i'm thinking about you you know i'm i'm sending warm thoughts i'm praying for you whatever i just want you to know you're not in this alone i know that this is really really hard if i could i'd be right there alongside next to you. but since i can't i just wanted you to know every day i'm thinking about you every day i'm hoping you go uh, the calls go well and every day i'm hoping you get great rest uh, get some of those good snacks give them the recommendations ronda pointed out um i heard about this it's really helpful um, for for uh, fixing sleep issues you can be the encourager that makes the difference by providing them um, the outside perspective that they don't have the time to think on their own uh, for all of those EMS workers uh, in, in your community, Dave.
1: Thanks, Jonathan. Uh, interesting question here from Keith. I've been wearing so much PPE so often that I'm sweating a lot and I'm having a hard time staying hydrated. Do you have any tips?
0: Ah, uh, Keith, right there with you, brother. Hydration is one of my favorite topics to talk about. When I was with Aurora Fire, I got administration to allow us to put laminated pea color charts in all of the bathrooms through all of our stations. We'd emphasize to people, they're not laminated for sample comparison or target practice, but we just want to educate you that the best way to tell how hydrated you are is to watch how light or how dark your urine is. Um, The big tip for staying hydrated over a long shift, especially when you're sweating a lot and it sounds like you work someplace hot, is pre We can't come into the beginning of the shift being dehydrated or we're never going to catch up. That just does not work. So making sure that you drink a fair amount of fluid before you come into work, um, making sure that you are drinking constantly throughout your shift when you get the opportunity. By the time we feel thirst, by the time we have that sensation, we can be as much as a liter to a liter and a half down on our fluid volume. So if we're just waiting until we feel thirsty, we're, we're never going to catch up. The rule of thumb, which helps so much in the field, is that we can absorb about eight ounces of water every 15 minutes down to the cellular level. So if you get up and you chug a liter of water and you think that's going to carry you for a couple hours, it isn't really. It'll be a good kidney flush, but it's not going to maintain your hydration. So you need to drink frequently. Um, Things about temperature, fluids that are about 45 to 50 degrees are more readily absorbed in the cellular level. We don't have a lot of control over that. It's just something to know. Um, making sure that you drink something that doesn't have a lot of sugar in it so that you can absorb it more readily is another good um, indicator for or another good practice around hydration. You can also get fluid from eating foods that are high in fluid content. Fruits are one of the first ones to jump to mind. Um, Making sure that you carry a water bottle with you. That can be a lifesaver. Keep it up in the cab, drink it, refill it when you're at the hospital, making sure you always have liquid available when you need it. Um, A lot of people are fearful of drinking coffee because they're afraid it's going to dehydrate them. The most recent studies I've shown is that if you drink nine ounces of coffee, you're probably going to have increased urination of three ounces. So you're still getting six ounces of hydration. Obviously, coffee has some impacts around sleep and everything else. But if that's the only liquid you have, you're not going to dehydrate yourself. You're going to have a net positive from that. But again, pre-gaming, keeping up throughout the shift, drinking frequently, watching your urine levels to make sure or your urine color to make sure you keep it towards the lighter end than the darker end. The other thing, too, if you're doing a great job at maintaining your urine in the lighter end of the color spectrum and also and or if you're sweating a lot during your shift drop a pinch of salt in the water. You need some electrolytes too because you're losing electrolytes or use an electrolyte solution, whatever you need, but make sure you're getting some of those minerals in there too to make sure that your fluid levels and also your electrolyte levels are staying balanced.
1: Thanks, Rhonda. Uh, We have talked today about emotional um, health and resiliency. Katie has a perspective on that. We are seeing a huge increase in cardiac arrests and I worry so much about the downstream effects and the PTSD that will result from this volume. Uh, Is there anything we can do now to address this potential?
0: We know that a lot of the post-traumatic stress we see throughout the emergency response world isn't associated with a single event, it's more cumulative. And Katie's reflecting on that with talking about a volume of cardiac arrest. The thing that I think we can do to be most protective goes back to that self-care. And setting realistic expectations. And this is one of the questions that I was referring to earlier, talking about sometimes when we go into a cardiac arrest, even though we work them, we do everything we can, it does result in a field pronouncement. Really recognizing and walking away from that scene, saying that we did the best we could. We did everything based on what we saw appropriately. We were there for the family. We provided what support and comfort that we could. Let's call this a win. Let's not carry it away and exacerbate. uh, the potential traumatic impact it has with our own feelings of failure or our negative self-talk. So really setting realistic expectations. The outcome is oftentimes determined before we get there. We do the best we can, and then we have to move on to the next call. Being present in the moment and then leaving that moment behind us to the best we can to move forward in the next call is very protective we are far more likely to suffer stress injuries and post-traumatic stress disorder, post-traumatic stress injury, they're all considered the same thing when we are already stressed coming into it. So self-care as a preventive tool is incredible in preventing stress injuries, whether that be full-blown PTSD, anxiety, stress, I'm sorry, anxiety, depression, substance misuse for numbing, any of those things, we are less likely to encounter those failed attempts at coping when we are healthy in the first place. Um, Just like you're less likely to suffer a physical injury when your body's in good shape and you've had rest and you've stretched and you're strong, you're less likely to suffer an emotional injury when you are taking care of your mental and emotional health on a day-to-day basis. The other big thing is to know those signs of a progressive stress injury and to recognize them in yourself and in others and to reach out for help early on in the process. Early detection and treatment, way better than waiting until we're in the red zone where we've gotten to the point where we are struggling with severe depression, with post-traumatic stress, with thoughts of suicidality. Um, being aware and taking early steps is is tremendously beneficial. Jonathan, do you have anything to say around that?
2: Well, I think uh, making sure that you are um, staying on top of the 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 view that, as Rhonda pointed out, it's happening now, the, the, the cardiac arrests are happening now, there's a seeming to be this buildup, but if you show up and were to take it out of the context of the, uh, the, 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 the human body who's broken down in front of you and you show up on a car accident and all the people are okay, well, the, the damage to that car had nothing to do with whether or not you wanted to give care when you arrived, the damage was already done. And so you do, you do the best you can um, in that situation. But if the insurance adjuster were to show up to see that car and say, well, this one's total, there's nothing that can be done. We can do all the work on it. And we're not going to be able to get it back to where um, it's going to function properly. Um, to try and absolve yourself of uh, some of that, uh, the, the guilt that you, you didn't do something right. Um, but also continue to point out and share with others that this experience that we're having. Um, Help them to recognize that while we are normalizing, we don't want this to be our new normal, but we are normalizing this as more of these cardiac uh, cardiac arrests that are taking place and the downstream effects that will likely come from that if we can normalize. It makes sense that you're more frustrated because you're seeing a lot more of these codes. But if we can help, remember, this is the season that we're in. It is not the forever. Um, To get people back into a mindset that will point them towards Let's work through this. Let's get through it together and then be ready to continue doing the same type of work for each other, for our community in a different way um, once COVID-19 has has become um, less of the front and center that it is uh, is right now.
1: How about the fact that information is uh, changing so rapidly? How can we ensure that we have the most reliable and accurate information? I worry that my agency and my leadership might not be using best practices? And I'll I'll group that with the next uh, question. One of the problems with COVID-19 is that information is changing daily, if not hourly. How do we educate ourselves when we are essentially dealing with the unknown?
0: Great questions. And this is definitely a change in our paradigm. We are used from a time frame where the new evidence-based practices were put into play years after the evidence came into play. It was discovered, it was validated, it went through a long process, it got translated into our education, went through AHA or other governing agencies, and then was affected in our process. And that's kind of the norm. That's how we expect things to happen. And then we consider that information to be the Bible the the end-all be-all on this is how many compressions we do versus ventilations or this is the current ACLS standard. That's not the world we're in right now. COVID was so new, COVID-19, and there has been so much research globally around it that breakthroughs are being made on a very frequent basis. And oftentimes the new information comes to the forefront once it's validated on the fly. It's translated into changes in our practices within hours. It's a really challenging time frame, And I think based in our old paradigm, we look at that and think, well, this is just suspect then. Nobody knew what they were doing or how do we know this new information is valid because this doesn't fit our old model? The model's the problem, not the way we're operating right now. So I think it's, uh, it takes a conscious shift for us to recognize just because the information is new and just because it seems like it might be in conflict with what we were practicing three weeks ago, it's based on the latest in development. Every day we learn more about how COVID spreads. We learn more about what symptoms look like. We look about how it it can be shed by asymptomatic people. And it is really a boon and a benefit to our system that we are being flexible enough and nimble enough to respond to that, to change our practices in real time. So where it might've been seen as faulty information in the past is really just information keeping up with the spread of the, the epidemic right now. That is a definite change in mindset for us. Going back to the point How do we know we have the most reliable and accurate information? It's really referring to the groups that are putting the trusted stuff out there. You know, Anthony Fauci, CDC, Um, there is a lot of speculation out there. I would encourage everybody to avoid that, specifically on social media and on a lot of the news networks. Really just look at who you're listening to. What are their credentials? And are they at the front, the bleeding edge essentially of this research? Talking about your leadership and being concerned that your agency and leadership might not be using the best practices. I think, well, it depends on your, your organization and the communication that you have with them. Educating yourself as to the best practices, making sure you're watching what's being put out there by CDC and Dr. Fauci and so many others. And then if you have a specific concern addressing it, whether it's with your supervisor or with your leadership in a way that just says, hey, I heard this, this is considered really credible. I don't see us doing this, can you explain to me why? That can go a long way towards clarifying things. And sometimes the answer might be that we just don't have enough PPE yet, or it might be that we weren't aware of that. Thanks for bringing it to our attention. Um, Open a discussion. And again, it's really hard to give a definitive answer on that because it really depends on each organization. I hope that's helpful.
1: Thanks Rhonda. Uh, I think we have time for a few more questions today and again our thanks to Jonathan and Rhonda for uh, staying overtime with us and and helping us handle these questions. I really like this next one. I'm working alongside peers who have a, a huge amount of responsibility to their children, families, and parents who might be living with them, yet I am childless and single. There is a sense that I should be working more than they are and be more available since I'm single. How do I deal with this?
0: Ah, I look at this question and this situation in the terms of comparative suffering. We, When we talk about stress injury formation and we talk about responders feeling bad about themselves and being pushed to the point of suicidal ideation or suicidality, we talk about there is no comparative suffering. So many responders will say, well, I shouldn't be hurting like this because he isn't and he's had so much worse. Or we'll look at her losses. Her losses are so much worse than mine. I'm not entitled to my feelings. I really like Viktor Frankl, the father of existentialism. Um, For those who aren't familiar, he was a mental health professional who spent four or five years in Auschwitz. During that time, he developed the existentialist theory, which is basically life doesn't have its own inherent meaning and purpose. You have to keep recreating your own meaning and purpose. And when what you believe is your meaning and purpose is challenged by external events, you need to recreate it. You need to redevelop it because we all need this. And in his statement, coming back around to the comparative suffering, is that suffering is like a gas, a very apt analogy for him. It expands to fill all available space. In this situation, I would really encourage you, you do not have a greater obligations than any of your coworkers based on your life circumstances and your situation. And nobody has the right to look from the outside, not an internal perspective, not a lived experience of what your obligations and your realities of your life are. Um, So really caution you not to feel that. I know that sometimes people put that on, on their single coworkers or coworkers who from the outside are perceived to have fewer obligations and responsibilities. I would acknowledge that at some point you might be able to hold over a couple hours for somebody who's in a stressful situation. You might be able to come in a few hours early. But ultimately, your responsibility is to make sure you're taking care of yourself so you can function as a member of the team. It's also all your coworkers' responsibility. And if they have adopted, if they have created additional responsibilities and challenges in their life, they have their support system that they can help, that they can call in to draw, or they should. And it shouldn't be a burden to you. You shouldn't be expected to deliver more because your life circumstances are perceived by others to allow that. I hope that is really helpful. Um, again, I just really go back to the whole take care of yourself. Make sure you're showing up and able to perform in a way you can. When you can help without being, it being to your detriment, that's fantastic. But your life choices don't obligate you to, to filling in for somebody else who's made different life choices.
2: I think it could be really helpful um, to uh, whoever asked this uh, question and posed this scenario um, to also acknowledge and, excuse me, to to recognize where that sense may be coming from. Um, It it doesn't say in the question that you submitted that my coworkers have said this um, or my coworkers have implied this. It says that there's this sense, and so I want to challenge you and say, is there actually this sense coming from anybody else, or is this an internal thing? Because you're looking at what they're juggling, and you realize, well, I don't have all of those things to juggle. I should be doing more. Um, if that's where it's coming from, then you've got to do the work internally to recognize that that, that that isn't, as Rhonda pointed out, that that isn't your responsibility. Your responsibility is to do the job your responsibility is to take care of yourself so that you can take care of the other people who are around you. Uh, but if it is indeed coming, actually coming from um, other people, it's not coming from you, you need to recognize why that's happening. Because they're looking at all the things that they are doing and they are still feeling as though we aren't making the progress that I want to make in this situation. I want this to be better. I want people to be healthy. I, I don't want to, to have this be our life um, for an eternity as it feels sometimes on shift. And so they're looking everywhere that they can to say, well, I don't have any more bandwidth. I'm completely tapped out. You, you you over there, it looks like you might have some more bandwidth. Do more things, please, because they are also scared. And so recognize that it isn't coming, uh, it it is not likely coming from a place of uh, judgment or shaming um, or a a forced guilt trip. But this is somebody who's just grasping at anything that they can do, any opportunity that they can see, even if they can't take advantage of it. Somebody, please do more because we want this to be better. But as Rhonda pointed out, that doesn't mean that because you had different life choices, you are somehow inherently more responsible. Um, to fix the situation that we are in than anybody else.
1: Thanks, Jonathan. Uh question here from Kylie it might be kind of challenging, but if you could recommend one thing for a person who is not an EMS to help support EMS providers, what would that be?
0: I would say that depends on what the relationship is with the EMS providers. If Kylie is asking from the point of, I have friends who are in EMS, but I'm not myself, I would say encouraging them in self-care with checking in with them, having fun, light conversations on things that don't involve the COVID-19 response, don't involve work, encouraging them to do the things that you know that they enjoy, whether it is going for a run, meeting for a homemade cup of coffee on a park bench six feet apart, whatever it is, but really reaching out to let them know that you're there, you care about them, and allowing them some space for fun and for brevity in their life. If she is referring to how can I, as a member of the community who's not an EMS, help the EMS providers in my community that I haven't met yet, I'd say reach out to the agency and ask, is there anything that you need? And I think this is one of the things that gets lost in our social lives, but we're so good at it on the job, we don't go into any patient's house and just start treating for what they think, or for what we think they need. We ask them, you know, are you in pain? What's that level of pain? Um, and that better informs our care. I think the same thing here to reach out to the EMS community and ask them, what do you need? I'm here, let me know what I can do, is a great approach.
1: Thanks, Rhonda. Um, From Patty, we have a question here. I'd like to share this helpful information with others, but I'm worried they might take it the wrong way. How would you suggest the best way to share this information you've given us today?
0: I think coming in from a, a posture that Jonathan referred to earlier of humility, and also a posture of excitement and enthusiasm. Hey, I heard this webinar. Hey, I started integrating some of these practices into my life and I think they're really helping me. What do you think about them? Or coming from the point of, yeah, you know, um, I've been struggling with these things. What would you do in my situation? And then starting to draw upon some of this information. Um, just like anything else, you can lead the horse to water but you can't make it drink. Um, you can present it in a non-threatening way in a way that's filled with excitement or humility. And then just trust, even if they don't jump on it at the moment, maybe in the next few days, you've planted the seed and it will become a better idea in their minds. Or maybe they'll see you enacting it and see changes in you that they now want to emulate because you're walking the talk.
1: All right. We will have a question here from Vincent to, uh, to wrap things up. And Vincent is talking about, uh, again, management and leadership. How can we convince our managers to invest in supporting the families of, of EMS providers?
0: That's been a huge movement across the country in emergency response. We know the families, the therapeutic unit. We know that if we want to support our responders to the best of our abilities, we need to, know, we need to recognize that the families are part of our responders' life. We need to recognize that a lot of the stressors that are coming into the workplace as responders are driven by stresses and conflict in their relationships, and that oftentimes the occupation contributes to that inadvertently. Um, I think that progressive leaders across the country understand this. I know there are still pools of areas and organizations who don't understand it. There are a tremendous number of resources out there. Jonathan's with the Center for Relationship Education. We built out a program called Responding to Your Relationships, which is for responders and their significant others. Uh, check it out online. I founded Responder Strong several years ago. Our mission was to improve mental health support, not only for responders, but for their family members. I'd encourage you to check out both those sites and the contact info at the end of the, the presentation. But If your organization is not seeing the need to support families, I think you're going to find a lot of fuel for that on both of those sites. If you are finding that's not enough, please feel free to reach out to either one of us. We would love to help you and to to provide you with resources and support to create more family support in your agency.
2: Oftentimes what happens in an agency is the uh, agency says, "Well, we don't have the money, to, we would like to, we just don't have the money. And one of the things that we can help you help them understand is that any agency that isn't already doing this uh, to the very best of their ability is actually already paying. Um, they're paying in calls that go uh, poorly, they're paying in uh, lost productivity, uh, they're paying in mistakes made on the job by distracted individuals because the individuals who are in healthiest in their relationships and who feel most supported by their uh, agency and by their families uh, are the ones who are less likely to cause um, big financial drains on an agency's resources when a mistake gets made um, behind the wheel uh, on a call. And they also will help to turn the culture of an organization from being one that's uh, more negative focused to being one that is uh, got a more positive spin on it, uh, where people are enjoying it more. So we get more tenure, we get more experience, and we have people who enjoy uh, doing a really challenging job um, for longer uh, than they would in situations and agencies where they do not feel that same level of support. And in those agencies, they they are already paying the price. Uh, It's it's hitting their bottom line, but because it doesn't have a specific line item next to it, uh, they don't see it.
1: Jonathan and Rhonda, we can't thank you enough for uh, putting together this presentation and also staying overtime to help us field all the questions coming in. Uh, One more time, we would like to thank McKesson for sponsoring this webinar and and helping bring the presentation to you. Um, Jonathan, Rhonda, any closing remarks before we sign off for today?
0: Well, just thank you to EMS World for allowing us this opportunity. Jonathan and I are both very, very passionate about... The um, improved potential or the, the potential to improve responders lives through improving relationship and communication skills, eliminating needless suffering and better supporting all of the emergency responders in performing their duties and their jobs and and not paying the price for it. Thank you.
2: Thank you to all of you who are listening in, um, who want to be healthier, uh, who want to be your best, and uh, for doing the work that you do to help um, so many people who, in a d- typical situation, are not always uh, nearly as thankful as, uh, as as we need to be. But uh, from the bottom of my heart, I really appreciate your efforts and uh, the time that you invest in, uh, in yourself, uh, which translates into improvements in the relational wellness and overall health for your families and uh, for your communities. Thank you.
1: Thank you so much, and uh, I will uh, just give a quick note to our audience. We have uh, recorded this webinar. It will be archived and available shortly. You'll be able to find that at emsworld.com slash webinars, and I would uh, encourage our listeners to please bookmark that page. Keep uh, going back to it. There's a lot happening there. Um, we are posting archives as they come available, and we are also scheduling a whole series of of new uh, presentations designed to keep you informed on uh, on the pandemic and uh, and its repercussions. So our next presentation will be next Tuesday, April 7. Uh, Jonathan Washko of Northwell Health EMS in New York will be speaking on how EMS can launch telehealth and transport alternatives during the COVID pandemic. And then on April 9th, we will have Margaret Carmen joining us from the University of North Carolina School of Nursing. Margaret will be speaking on healthcare education in the COVID pandemic. Uh, specifically on the role of using online patient simulations. So, again, thank you to all of our listeners for joining us today and and for what you do every day in the field. We can't thank you enough for what you're doing. Jonathan, Rhonda, thank you again, and uh, we'll see everybody on the next webinar. Have a great day.
0: This has been an episode of EMS World Podcast. You can find this audio and more like it on the podcast page of emsworld.com. You can also follow EMS World on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram.